0: Unfortunately, we've all had stories of family members who have battled addiction. I know I have. A family member who died before I was born lost it all. Another family member became basically homeless in their obsession to get the next drink. Their Their lives revolve around the desire for ecstasy, not the drug, but the desire for pleasure. We'll do almost anything for it, won't we? Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year and uh, oftentimes uh, every waking moment of our lives can be spent on simply trying to find pleasure. We're hardwired by God to pursue that. And that's the focus of our current series that we've taken a little break from. It'll be coming to a close tonight. We all have this unquenchable desire for pleasure. Our soul craves it above all else when we're young, this craving displays itself in ways that are obvious and redundant. If you guys know kids, a little kid, all they want to do is have fun. That is the goal every day. Wake up, watch cartoons, get my Cheerios, have mommy and daddy play with me, have mommy and daddy play with me more. Another adults around who I know and love, their whole goal in coming here is to play with me. That's what it's all about, right? A little kid is hardwired by God for the whole world to revolve around them, right? And this desire for pleasure. But like everything else in our life, sin come comes in and perverts this. As we age, our drive for pleasure is a little less obvious though, isn't it? As teenagers, maybe we're, we're a little more extroverted in our pursuit of finding pleasure in the wrong place. It might be in promiscuity. It might be in drugs and alcohol. It might be in uh, addiction to entertainment or addiction to a million other things. But then as we get out of our teen years and move into adulthood, our drive for pleasure is a little less obvious. It's a little more socially acceptable. We fulfill this endless desire for pleasure in more conspicuous ways. Think about the rate of divorce alone in our country. To think that uh, just over half of marriages end in divorce, and most of those are probably because of adultery, and many uh, in marriages where they're has been adultery committed. Oftentimes, it doesn't end in divorce, and yet still, there are many who don't even confess it. So think about that. To spend all the time and money necessary to hide another relationship from your loved ones and from the world. That takes a lot of planning, doesn't it? People do that because they're searching for pleasure. We'll sell our soul for it. We'll give up everything for it. Our souls demand pleasure, and it can only be found in the one who never grows tired of filling up our pleasure pleasure reservoir with the richest of foods. I hope that if there's any message you get from me as the years go on, it's this one. God is the only one in which we can find pleasure. God is not a fan of empty religion or empty ritual. He's not a fan of blind obedience in order to get some kind of reward. He is the giver of good things. In Psalm 63, one of my life verses and one of the staples of our series here, it says, verse one, You, God, are my God. It's personal. Earnestly, I seek you. In other words, I desperately desire you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And then in verse 5, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. There should be no indulgence that feels better than Jesus. That is his goal. That probably none of us are there tonight, or very few. But that's what he's working us towards as we obey, as we say no to the flesh, and we say yes to that which we know is biblically true, that pleasure is found in God alone. And we stake our lives on that promise. Even though our flesh, our bodies naturally want to do anything else but pursue God sometimes. He brings us to that place where our greatest indulgence will be our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have looked at the primary purpose of our lives through this series. God keeps our hearts beating so that we might enjoy Him. Two words cover the purpose of every second of our lives. Can you guess what those two words are? Enjoy God. Well, Becky heard heard me talking through my message to my office today, but that's okay. Enjoy God. We've already taken time to look at the traps we can often fall into when we fail to find our satisfaction in Christ. We took some time a couple weeks ago to look at how to grow in our enjoyment of the Lord, and we couldn't get it all into one message, or I couldn't. Uh, So I want to do really the part two of that message tonight. So we pick off where we left off tonight a number of weeks ago. And we're looking at how to grow in our enjoyment of he who wants to give us pleasure to fill our souls with what it ultimately desires. We grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through blessing. Through blessing. Blessing is not synonymous with well-wishing. It's not like saying good luck. It's way bigger than that. It comes from the soul and it has unbelievable power, supernatural power, when it's delivered by the person who walks with Jesus. The concept of blessing is found all over Scripture, and it's sacred, and it's special, and it's earth-shattering and mountain-moving. In Genesis, Isaac gives a blessing to his son before he dies. He asks his son to prepare a special meal for him, his specialty, before he provides the blessing and before he dies. So we read of Isaac in Genesis chapter 27, verse 4. He says to his son, prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. And it was a very rich meal. And I hope I can eat like that on my deathbed as a side note. But anyway, ADD moment. Esau, the firstborn and rightful recipient of the family blessing, was deceived by his brother Jacob out of the birthright. And here was the problem. That birthright blessing from the father to the son was a huge deal. It was social security because that son who received the blessing not only received financial blessing, it was very practical, he received tremendous spiritual blessing. And he was the one to be the covering, the pastor, so to speak, of the rest of the family, extended family included. And that money from that blessing was to also provide for them. So it's huge. But here was the problem. Jacob deceived his brother Esau out of the blessing, and once it had been delivered, it could not be rescinded. That's how powerful the blessing was. It could not be taken back, which that's shocking to us because in our world, text and emails and social media, words don't even matter. You know, half the news we hear, we don't even believe, or we know it's twisted in one way or another. It's just words. Blessings are different. There's a blessing we can't improve upon that I want us to develop some discipline in applying to one another. I wanna ask us as a congregation can we grow in our discipline, or our, the discipline of blessing? Can we develop our blessing game, so to speak? That's the coach in me. I can't help but talk like that. It's not in the notes. It is difficult for us for some reason because of the woundedness in us to speak a direct blessing into the eyes of another brother or sister. There's something about it that's embarrassing, isn't it? When we're kids, we can run up to mom and dad or friend. You ever seen two little kids having a play date? They call them play dates now. They didn't call them that back in the day. For some reason, they do now up until kids are about 13 or 14. It's kind of weird. But anyway, you have this play date, and uh, two kids come in the room, and they run towards each other, and they just celebrate one another. They're hugging, they're jumping around, they're screaming. As we get older, you know, you walk up, it's like, hey, man, how you doing? I saw two guys at the airport. They were obviously brothers. I mean, you just couldn't deny it. And you could tell they were about to part ways. And I could see, I remember my sons when they were little, and when they would see each other after a long time or whatever, they would just go nuts. Hi, Justin, by the way. I haven't seen you. Good to see you, man. I didn't know you were here tonight. This a friend, friend of ours. Been around a long time. Haven't seen him in a while. And, you know, they say, I'm trying to practice what I preach. I just want to just be, let them know I love them very much. And so, you know, these two dudes, they're very manly looking dudes with like the camo hats and stuff and the type of guys that, unlike me, talk about tools and building stuff and I kind of nod and act like I understand what they're saying. They, they, I thought they were probably those kind of guys. And, you know, they're interacting and I can tell they're about to say bye and they both want to celebrate one another. But it's just one of those deals. I overheard him. It's like, well, we'll see you around, and they just walk away. And you know, that's how we are, aren't we? We're guarded. But the Lord wants us to bless one another, because the Lord rejoices over us with singing. He celebrates us, and we're made in His image, and we desperately desire for others to see what God is doing in us and what he wants to do for us and to speak it into our lives. There's a blessing that's thousands of years old and we can't improve upon it. It's the, it's the world's oldest blessing and it's in Numbers chapter six, verse 24. I'm gonna make you uncomfortable tonight, by the way, just as a warning, some of the stuff I'm gonna ask you to do. It says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you Peace. And, you know, blessing and cursing are not just theological words. They are simply the two ways that we treat people. Every time we open our mouths or have a thought or speak towards another person, whether it's verbal, nonverbal, whatever, we are pronouncing a blessing or curse over them. It doesn't always have to involve verbal communication. You know, in my neighborhood, there are lots of cars parked along the side of the road. And there are these unwritten rules about, like, when you're supposed to stop behind these cars and when you're supposed to go and, you know, make the other person stop and all that. Tons of cars, especially at night. The problem is everybody has a rule book that's written in a slightly different way. Their rules are slightly different. So, you know, I'm driving one day out of my neighborhood, and, and I must have violated this woman's unwritten rule book. Because my rule book says you stop behind a bunch of cars and, you know, I inch forward to get behind another car. And I thought this woman was motioning me to come forward. And I thought that was a universal rule, regardless of your rule book, that when someone goes like this, it means drive forward. Well, she must have been waving at a child in the back seat or something. Because when I came forward, let's just say she gave me a nonverbal with her left hand that was not a blessing but was a curse. Okay, so we can do that. You know, and I used to think that cursing someone meant just that. You know, it meant that you cast some type of spell on someone or something, or you use filthy language or a filthy gesture, in my case, to put someone in their place. But a curse can be given passively by giving someone the silent treatment or even in your own mind deciding, I'm not going to get any closer to this person because of something they didn't even know they did to you. Blessing and cursing are mysteriously powerful. They change the heart of the giver and the receiver, and we see it all over every genre of scripture. So can we as a congregation try to grow in our blessing of one another? Because it has tremendous power to heal. This blessing that I read from Numbers is a good template to get us started and develop our growth in this area. And it starts, the Lord bless you. You know, we say bless you when someone coughs. I wish we wouldn't say that because it's become just, it's become just a cultural thing that means nothing. And we forget this, the power of this word bless. It means may the Lord bring continual good into your life. Like food goes into the body, so words go into the soul. And they either make us more healthy or diseased. They either bring life or death. James chapter 3 verse 5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider that a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is tiny, but mighty. In October of 1871, the terrible Chicago fire broke out and it killed 300 people, leaving 100,000 homeless and destroyed 3.3 square miles. You know how that fire got started? A horse kicked over a lantern in a barn. One little spark ignited a monstrous fire that devoured a city. A word misspoken from a black person to a white person or from a white person to a black person can ignite a riot that leaves wounds for decades and has thousands upon thousands of people hating one another and they can't even define why. Angry words or insults from a parent can result in a lifetime of insecurity for a child. The father who says you'll never amount to anything or the mother who says no man will ever want you. They're like a barbed wire club to our souls, taking chunks of us out with every disgusting utterance. Words can kill, but we have two choices with our words. Again, in James chapter 3, verse 9, picking up in the same section, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? We can bless or curse, can't we? While while cursing one another comes quite natural to us, the times that I have cursed someone else with my words or my passivity or whatever, I haven't even thought about it. it. It's natural. But to bless... That takes practice. That takes the Holy Spirit working in us, us creating space for the Holy Spirit to develop this discipline in our lives. And we have the script, the game plan in Numbers chapter 6. Again, it starts, may the Lord bless you. Those are far from empty words. They're words of life. And now I want you to stand up. Stand up. I said I was going to make you uncomfortable. Here it goes. I want you to look into the eyes of your neighbor, and slowly, prayerfully, and with focus, take turns doing this, look at him in the eyes, and say, may the Lord bless you. Oh, nice. All right. All right, don't bless each other that much. You guys can have a seat. What was that like? Was it weird for you? Was it weird for you to do that? Okay. Well, we can say may the Lord bless you with our actions too, can't we? Many of you know that uh, I like baseball just a little. And uh, for Father's Day... I received my most prized possession from my kids. This is not just any bat. This is a fungo bat. Does anyone except for Mike Henderson know what this is? (laughs) Mike Henderson and I coach together. Anybody know what this is? Oh, Ben, you know what it is. You're a baseball player. What does one do with the fungo bat? ground Ground balls and fly balls. It is exclusively for a coach. Okay, this is, if you hit a live pitcher with this, it'll crack it in half. It is specifically weighted for a coach to be able to easily and gracefully hit a pop-up or a ground ball for infield or whatever drills you might do. Now, this isn't just any fungo bat. It's made of maple and not ash, which is the appropriate wood for a fungo bat. (laughs) The accents are classic and will never go out of style. Its weight is absolutely divine, and the tapered handle works well. My hands don't slip when they become sweaty. Now, but what really makes this a blessing for my kids is they have inscribed on the bat, our first and best coach, Anna, Timmy, and Josiah. I'm going to stop teaching now. (laughs) Best present ever. When we bless others, there's something of a mystery that happens in the spiritual realm. I can't understand it, but I can feel it. When another believer encourages me, when a believer looks into my eyes and tells me what they think God is doing in my life, or they acknowledge something they see that they've seen God use me for, or when my kids give me a gift like that. The parts of my soul that still believe lies are pulled out into the light of the gospel. Words can literally lift us up out of darkness or make us more vulnerable to the fiery arrows of the enemy of our souls. This blessing in Numbers continues. The Lord keep you this means I want God to protect her. I want the love of Christ that was poured out on the cross to protect all that's sacred about this woman. So I want you to go ahead and offer this blessing to your neighbor as well. Go ahead, stand up, look into their eyes slowly, deliberately, take turns saying this, the Lord keep you, the Lord keep you. All right, very good. This blessing has, re- has been spoken to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers throughout the history of the church and even back into ancient Israel. When we bless others through our words and actions, we feed their souls with the rich food that only God can provide. And this blessing also includes another line. It says, the Lord make his face shine upon you. Now, I want you to get a picture here in mind. How many of you have ever visited the hospital of a family friend or you've been the grandparent of or cousin, aunt, uncle uh, of a child that has been born and you go into the hospital room? How many of you have had that experience? So quite a few of you have. I have on many occasions, and when you go in there and you look on the faces of the grandparents, the parents, the family members, the friends, this celebration of new life, their faces are radiant with joy. That's the picture I want you to get of the way God thinks of us. He rejoices over us with singing, Zephaniah says. Glory always shines, and it's meant to be shared. So I want you, too, to speak These words over one another, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Do that now. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Go ahead. See, I see Brady and Josh, my mom, they're really doing it the right way, the way I was afraid to ask you to do it. The way I think this works best is to say this blessing either in your own words or right from the text here in the Word. With somebody that you feel called to speak it over, put your hands on their shoulders and speak it over them. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. He shed his blood and died for them. And they deserve a priest in God's kingdom. And that's any of you who know and love Jesus pronouncing a priestly blessing over them. Just as the high priest in Judaism would speak it over the congregation, your words have power. Similarly, the blessing continues. The Lord turn his face to you. Turn his face to you. It's like someone hears you walk into the room and they acknowledge it. You know, They look at you. Lifting up your face to someone lets them know that you're fully present, you're there with them, you're locked in. That's why communication must involve eye contact. When my wife Becky looks at me with a face that's bright with a smile, it's more than just a look. It often makes my heart race today more than it did 23 years ago when we were dating. There's something in her eyes that's different when she looks at me than when she looks at you. So it is, (laughs) sorry, it's true. So so it is with Jesus. His glorious face is focused on you, and his eyes light up. In a way, they light up differently for everybody else, but they light up uniquely when they see you. So I want you to speak these words over one another as well. The Lord turn his face toward you. The Lord turn his face toward you. Go ahead and do that. All right. And give you peace. That's the fitting end of this blessing. And give you peace. The spirit of God gives us peace that transcends all knowledge and understanding. And it's more than just the absence of war. It's a soul peace that's not dependent on circumstances. It's the peace that Dietrich Bonhoeffer experienced in his prison cell, despite ultimately paying the price for his faith, faith, suffering martyrdom at the hands of the Nazis. This piece is seen in a child when they fall down. I was always amazed when my kids were little and they would be out doing, you know, chalk art on the blacktop. And they'd fall and skin their knee and there'd be a little scratch and they'd fall down and they would look at me as if to ask, should I be hurt right now? <laughs> and it's that pregnant pause that if you've been around little kids, you know, it's like, Whoo! and everyone's kind of going like this. And I'd look at them and say, you're okay. You're okay, Anna. You're okay, Anna. You're okay. And more often than not, they'd look at you, you know, and eyes would get all big. The tears would And then 10 seconds later, they snap back, and they're running around doing their chalk and stuff again. (laughs) That's kind of like what we're talking about here. The Lord speaks this blessing to our innermost parts, reminding us that despite our circumstances, it's well with our soul despite the fact that the romantic relationship didn't work out, despite the fact that you're not married or haven't had kids when you've wanted it, that the job hasn't worked out, that the physical health is crumbling or whatever else it might be. When we hear these words or similar words spoken to us by another believer, they have power. I think One of the great deficiencies of the church today is we have lost this art of blessing because words no longer matter in our culture. And we all know that most conflict starts with words. We know that most of our, our wounds from the past, many of us in this room, probably most of us, stem from words spoken over us. And we have the divine power To demolish strongholds in one another's lives through the power of the word spoken. That's why we're doing this little exercise. So I want you to speak this to your neighbor May the Lord give you peace. May the Lord give you peace. So we grow in our enjoyment of the Lord by speaking blessing over one another. And do you know that the Lord tells us that he wants us to be competitive with one another? Did you know that? There's one area he gives us permission to be competitive with one another in. Do you know what it is? Anybody know? Yeah, showing a volleyball. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. showing honor to one another, that we're to outdo, try to outdo one another in doing good for one another. That is, I'm to use the power of creativity that God gave me to think of how I can bless you. That's why Paul was able to say, I never stop praying for the church at Colossus. That's why Uh, I can never pronounce his name right. You guys can correct me if I get this wrong. But Epaphras, if I'm pronouncing that right, that's why he said the same thing. They're always praying. They're always thinking how they can be a blessing. That's what the Lord wants for us. This desire to join God in bringing the pleasure of God into the lives of others brings the pleasure of God into us. That's his desire. So we grow in enjoyment of the Lord through blessing. We also grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through expressing gratitude. How many of you have heard the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? How many of you have heard that? Can somebody sing that for me? Just the first line. Oh, we're getting like the whole thing over here. Good. That's pretty impressive. Nice. Nice. You know that song was written by a poor Irish farmer who was fighting political unrest at the peak of the conflict that existed between the Catholic nationalist minority against the Protestant unionist government and the police force that existed. The songwriter thought that satisfaction would come only through finding a solution to the social and political unrest. The only thing that's true about what I just said is the title of the song. I know nothing about that songwriter or what his motivation was. I just wanted to make sure you're still listening, all right, because I knew the whole blessing thing might be awkward for you, so I just wanted to make sure we were still on the same page, but the song does highlight our desire for satisfaction, and we know that satisfaction must be sought out. It doesn't just come to us. We are all experts. Do you know one thing we all share in common in this room? We are experts, professionals, at finding satisfaction, okay? We seek it out. It doesn't just happen. We got to seek it out. Being gratified in God, finding our satisfaction in him is where joy begins. So we must apply ourselves to becoming grateful because that's where joy is found. And we have to first commit ourselves to what I said at the beginning, that My satisfaction, even though I don't always feel like my satisfaction is in the Lord, it is in the Lord, and I'm going to live my life accordingly on faith. And that implies we will not find satisfaction by getting more stuff. Again, just look at the way we all were on Christmas morning. You know, you receive more Christmas presents as a kid than any other time in the entire year, you know. And have you ever seen a kid... At the end of Christmas Day, or maybe you remember this about your own childhood, what starts out is oh, yay, at the end of the day is like, woo! I mean, it's like meltdown because they got all this stuff, but it's not the stuff that makes you happy. But the build-up to this day was like, I can't wait to get presents. You know, it's like the sin nature comes out, and uh, then the day comes, and it's not what it was cracked up to be. Gratitude comes not when we get more stuff or accomplish more. Gratitude comes when we view life through the correct lens. We see life through God's provision and his goodness when we see it in three specific ways. And if we feed our souls with these gratitude realities, we'll grow in our gratefulness and we'll find more joy. The first is we need to recognize the tremendous gift God has given us. You will not find joy if you don't preach the gospel to yourself Every day. You will not grow in your faith. You will not grow in your love for the Lord. You will not grow in your joy if you don't preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself every day from God's word. It doesn't have to be some big, sophisticated devotional or study time. But at the very least, every day, go to a passage that makes your heart grow hot for the gospel of Jesus Christ and speak it over to yourself. Here's one of mine. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. That is everything about me. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here is the power of God's word. He's given us a mind to study it. He's also given us a soul that desperately desires to be filled with his word. So even when you grow old and you can no longer study the word, you can listen to it or read it on 300-point on font, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will use it to renew you and make you more grateful. This discipline is the most important for us to commit to so that our hearts may become grateful for salvation. If we can't preach the gospel to others with tears in our eyes because we're such filled with gratitude, we're so filled with gratitude, then there's growth that needs to happen in us. If we don't see the need to preach the gospel to others, then we don't get it. And we're not grateful. He's given us so much and we need to speak blessing to God. Speak back to him to say bless you Lord for salvation and don't say thank you. Because bless is more pregnant with worship than simply thank you. To bless is to wish something good for someone's soul. And I don't have time to go to these passages, but do you know God has a soul? He's not just an it. He has a soul. And we say, God, I want good to come to your soul for this blessing. I can thank somebody for a candy bar. I may not bless them, you know. When we express gratitude to God in this way, the Holy Spirit helps us feel more grateful, which then in turn helps us find more satisfaction in God, especially when we don't feel like it. Second, gratitude requires receiving something from a giver or a benefactor. We must realize that the good we have in our lives is not from self-effort or merit. It's not from others. It's from God. In James 1:16 through 18, it says, Don't be deceived. So we're easily deceived on this, so we need to take note. We're idiots in this area, all of us. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. You know, if, I think if we were to write this today, we might say, don't be imbeciles, don't be morons, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created." We are to be dripping with gratitude. That's what makes our lives and our church attractive. That's why we're told to stop complaining and stop arguing. All those things are secondary commands. This is the primary command. Be grateful in God. When you see the sunrise, remember the resurrection once again. When you see the sunset, remember that he's coming back and time as we know it will end only for new life to come. And for final redemption to come upon us when we see his face. And every other moment of the day is filled with his goodness hiding everywhere. That's apparent to those of us who look. Finally, gratitude comes through realizing that we are the receiver of good gifts from God. He is the benefactor and we are the beneficiary. In other words, we don't deserve it. We're not entitled to his compassion and salvation. Many of us, myself oftentimes too, we're not grateful and we don't enjoy God because we look around and believe that all we have, all we've gained is by our own resourcefulness. We're not entitled to the blessings in our lives and we must come to God with a posture of humility. Our natural default mode as human beings is to think that the house or the car, or the friendships or the marriage or the education or whatever is rightfully mine. I earned it because of my personality or my intellect or whatever. I'm entitled to it, and we worship what we view as the self-made person. The bigger the sense of entitlement, the less we'll be grateful for. That's why, generally speaking, the more wealthy a country is, the less grateful they are. The more we get, the less grateful we typically become. When we still start feeling like we're owed because of all the good we do, we get upset because we're not getting more, so we fill our vacuum with everything under the sun. Our souls become desperate, and we fill it with sex or substances or entertainment or whatever, and then that, because of the deception, don't be deceived, every good and perfect gift comes from God, we become less grateful because we filled our souls with crap instead of what God would have for us. I've seen it in those who have started a ministry or a business with a desire to honor God. At first, it's all about the mission to honor God through a well-run business that provides provisional opportunities for people to feed their families or out of a desire to disciple people into a life in Christ. At first, the entrepreneur is filled at the prospect of being used by God. They're initially surprised that God could use them, little old me, to do something great for his kingdom. They're at first overwhelmed with God's grace, then something strange happens as the business or ministry grows. What started as gratitude for the little that they had accomplished becomes complacency, anger, and lack of gratitude once the business or ministry is wildly successful. What was once a great privilege becomes a boring and laborious and monotonous responsibility, it becomes religion. And they think, I did this. So when others aren't impressed by them or when the slightest little thing doesn't go their way, they become angry or sullen. That childlike amazement is traded in for a religious sense of obligation. But when I see life through the lens of, I should have received blessing for the good that I've done, I'm going to be horribly disappointed. But if I worship the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes, I'm playing with house money. I'm playing with house money at that point because I can be grateful regardless of my circumstances. That's why failure to be grateful is not primarily a psychological or an emotional problem. It's a sin problem. We're not owed. We're not entitled. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. We're to be grateful receivers of his grace every moment. And the word tells us in 1 Timothy 4.7 that we are to train ourselves to be godly. That is, we are to create opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work into our, work in our lives. So how do we train ourselves to be more grateful? This is one of those things, like how do I practically apply this to my life? We have a model for this training. In Jesus' day, every devout Israelite would pray what was called the 18 benedictions. The root word beni means good, plus diction means words. So a benediction was a good word. And it always began with the word "bless." So I could have tied this into the other point, but just so we could all track, I made it into two points. In the morning, the God-fearing Hebrew would pray 18 times, blessed are you, God. Blessed are you, God. In the middle of the day, they would pause and pray 18 times. Blessed are you, Lord, who abundantly forgives. Then at night, 18 more times, blessed are you, God. The purpose behind this biblical formula that Hebrews used was con- to connect the gift with the giver. It reminded them that every good gift comes from the Lord. It kept the current of gratitude powering their souls instead of the sense of self-accomplishment. They were training for gratitude, recognizing the goodness of God lifts us up beyond ourselves. Here's another way to acknowledge the good that God's done in your life and open up to the Holy Spirit's desire to train you and me to be grateful All of us in this room have had someone who has played a major role in their life. I got a card this last week, tremendous. I save them all. I put them in a file for a rainy day, and when I feel discouraged, I lift it out and read it. Some of them are from you who, you know, you're 30-some years old now, and you wrote it to me when you were 13 at some camp or whatever, in, like, different color ink, the whole thing, especially the girls. You know, it's very cute. Uh, But you can write a note to someone. I encourage you to do this. Maybe it's a leader in the church. Maybe it's an old coach, an old teacher. They don't even have to be a believer because God can use anybody in our lives, but someone who has made a difference. And write them a letter. Acknowledge that God has moved pieces of a puzzle in your life. You know what's cool when you start to do that? Because I've done this. You start to think all the way back to childhood and you will be amazed at like dominoes, the thing God, the things God has done at just the right time, using just the right people, to draw you to Himself. You'll start; your mind will just get blown by it. You'll be like, "Man, I wonder what did the the youth pastor who reached me years ago? You know who he was led to Christ by? A janitor in his school. How many things had God done in that janitor's life to set the dominoes in place to reach my youth pastor, who then reached me? And it, it just it, it'll It'll fill you with gratitude as we think on it, as we use our ability to be creative, our ability to think for God's redemptive purposes. These minds of ours, when they're changed by the Holy Spirit, can change our lives and others as we reflect on his goodness. So I want to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up now. I know I've gone a little late tonight. This is one of those topics, man, I just, once I get on, I just can't stop. But how is the Lord calling you away from cursing others and into blessing? Are you a gossip? How about you decide? Let me tell you what. Gossip is straight from the pit of hell. It's in magazines that we can buy just on gossip. It's, we love gossip. It's, it is straight from the pit of hell because it curses others, and they don't even have an opportunity to defend themselves. And it creates a fictional narrative of what's actually happening in the other person's life. So decide, you know what? For the next week, I'm going to get people who are close to me. If they hear me complaining or gossiping, they're going to tell me to stop right then. And I'm going to to bless that person in some way. I'm going to say, you know what? They always say hi to me whenever I pass them. Or, you know what? I've never seen somebody who's worked so hard, whatever it might be. It could be the letter that you write to another one, another person. Maybe it could be simply by repeating the blessing that we use tonight and speaking it into someone else's life. So how are you being called tonight to grow in blessing others and grow in gratitude? How's God calling you to use your words to transform? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for all the words that you've used in the mouths of your saints to speak over me through the years. Times where at just the right time when my soul would have reached for something else, you've spoken truth into my life. Lord, would you help us as a congregation to glow with gratefulness for you. Lord, would you help our, would you guard our mouths that they may only honor you and bless those who are the pinnacle of your creation. Lord, please help us. We want to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.